Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'sCatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, March 29th. Coming up, we talk to a young journalist trained in the West, part of that training right here in Kansas City with KCUR, about the pain of living in a war zone. I don't know if I'm gonna come back there and my apartment will be safe. When I packed it, it was actually, you know, one of the few times that I cried because I was packing some stuff, considering that what if I'm not coming back? Plus how one couple is trying to help people of color break into the hemp industry. But first, some headlines. The Kansas City Auditor's Office is preparing to investigate the Kansas City Police Department's hiring practices and diversity. While the audit has been planned for months, it now follows an investigation by the Kansas City Star that found multiple instances of racism within the department, including statistics that show black officers are disciplined more often than white officers. It also found a decrease in black officers in the department. City Auditor Douglas Jones says the audit will look at recommended hiring practices. We've done probably anywhere between 12 and 15 audits since 1996 of the police department. This is the first one looking at this specific topic, uh, recruiting and hiring. Jones' office will also conduct regular audits into how the KCPD and Board of Police Commissioners are spending a $33 million fund recently approved by the city council. That fund is meant to focus on community policing and hire more officers. A bill banning transgender girls and women from girls and women's sports in public schools and colleges is halfway through the Kansas legislature. Jim McLean of the Kansas News Service has more. Democratic Governor Laura Kelly vetoed a similar bill last year and lawmakers narrowly failed to override her. But this year's version passed the Senate last week with a veto-proof majority. If the House does the same and the bill becomes law, Democratic Representative Stephanie Byers, a transgender woman, says the ACLU of Kansas will likely go to court to block it. They know this is going to come down, uh, and, and if it does, there's a legal fight here. Asked to confirm that, ACLU Kansas Director Micah Kubik would say only that legal action is one of the options being considered. Courts have blocked similar laws in two of the 11 states that have adopted them. Republican governors in Indiana and Utah recently vetoed transgender ban bills. Until a few days ago, many considered Lviv a safe spot in Ukraine, a place where thousands of people have migrated to escape widespread bombing in Kyiv and elsewhere in the country. But today, Lviv is not safe. Russia has attacked the city with missiles. In Lviv is Anna Yukatenko, a Ukrainian journalist who trained here at KCUR. She spoke with KCUR's Sam Zeff about what life is like for her right now. Anna, tell me where you are and what you're seeing. So I am right now in Lviv, uh, in my apartment where I'm staying with my mom and my cat uh, since we fled Kiev. Just today we had uh, another air raid siren, but uh, right now um, the air was uh, like it was clear. Although, you know, just as you said, uh, two days ago there was uh, airstrikes hitting uh, some of the buildings uh, in Lviv. Anna, you sent us some uh, sound of what it sounds like there in Lviv when there is an air raid. I want to play some of that now. (laughs) 
Anna, what happens when air raid sirens go off there? It really depends. You know, uh, until recently, before before some missiles hit Lviv, uh, people were still pretty relaxed. Although, you know, the sound that you hear is very creepy, uh, but people didn't really pay attention until a couple of days ago. Uh, Right now, you know, the air raid sirens are kind of the soundtrack for most of Ukrainian cities, so people get really used to them. Because you have, like, multiple air raid sirens per day, like maybe two or three, and people are getting tired of this, and they start to neglect some of the safety rules. Anna, you can't see, but when you were talking about people sometimes ignoring the air raid sirens, I was shaking my head because I see the same thing and react the same way myself when uh, severe weather, when tornado sirens go off uh, around here in Kansas and Missouri. What has to happen for people to take this Seriously. Yeah, the tornado sirens going on. When I first came into in the US, I was really scared to hear this. <laughs> yeah, so obviously I was like, oh my God, what it is? Uh, so, and I ran uh, to hide somewhere. But like some people reacted as if it's normal. So I guess the same thing happened here. Like at first, everybody was very scared of the air raid sirens. It means that your city can be attacked from the air. Over 30 people were dead uh, after the missile hit the military base outside of Lviv, which is just, you know, less than 20 kilometers away from the city. Anna, you talked about uh, explosions around Lviv. You lived in the crossroads when you were here in Kansas City. Try to put into geographic perspective how far away uh, the explosions uh, that have been uh, from the missiles around Lviv. How do you? How far away were they? I would say it's close to being in the Kansas suburbs, uh, the other end of the city. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I would say yeah, about that range. But <laughs> I guess I guess you know, for people to start uh, sheltering, it really takes uh, you know experience in the the strike. You get so used to some of the danger that you don't really pay attention to this danger. Just as you mentioned, like uh, the, yeah, the tornado sirens going on. So I guess the same thing happened here. Like at first, everybody was very scared of the air raid sirens also because, you know, they are so loud. And yeah, I mean, it means that your city can be attacked from the air. So which is, you know, your life might be in danger. Uh, but as the time goes on, people started to adjusting, started adjusting to this new reality. Anna, before you left uh, the capital of Kiev, you sent us a video uh, looking around your apartment and looking uh, outside of your apartment. What struck me as, as we looked out the window in the video that you sent uh, us here, your former colleagues at KCUR, was how much it looked like I could have been looking out of any apartment window in Kansas City. It feels yeah. <laughs> to me, yeah, it feels to me like Kiev, Lviv, it feels very familiar. A lot of cities uh, in Ukraine are actually the size of uh, St. Louis, for example. And uh, nobody, you know, living in these cities, <laughs> they, they never imagined themselves being attacked and that there will be really a full-scale uh, full-scale invasion by Russia. We were leaving Kiev, and we, you know, I honestly, I don't know if I'm going to come back there and my apartment will be safe, 
I, when I packed it, it was actually, you know, one of the few times that I cried uh, because I was packing some stuff considering that what if I'm not coming back? Like what, what should yeah. I take, you know, with me? Tell me what your day to day is like. What are you doing? <laughs> well, mostly, mostly I'm trying to actually, you know, to keep my routine in some sense, it helps me to, to feel okay then mostly either I work or I volunteer, which meant like, you know, your friends are living their city. You need to find a place for them to stay, find the transport, provide them with some fresh information on like crossing the border or like coming to Western Ukraine. So, and then of course, uh, you know, because it's impossible to, to live in this kind of state of your kind of uh, always working, always reading the news. I'm trying to support myself also and like watch some movies, you know, uh, <laughs> in the evening. Like I binged uh, the season, the second season of Bridgetons yesterday just to sort of unwind and relax. Our case, you are colleague Anna Yukatenko in Lviv. Do me a favor, if you would, my friend, next time the sirens go off, please go into the shelter. <laughs> no, obviously. Like me and my family, I, I forced them to go. <laughs> we'll talk to you again. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. That was former KCUR journalist Anna Yukatenko speaking with KCUR's Sam Zeff. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's first-ever survey of hemp production found an industry worth more than $800 million. But the recent report also showed a glaring diversity issue. Just 6% of hemp growers are black. Cannabis has been a hard market for people of color to break into, but some hope hemp could offer a new way in. Harvest Public Media's Corinne Ruff recently visited what could be Missouri's first black-owned industrial hemp site. If you drive just northwest of Missouri's Lake of the Ozarks, you'll pass Mennonites and horse-drawn buggies and come across a curvy road that leads to a wrought iron gate. Behind it sits a forgotten piece of Missouri's black history, Lake Placid. The private black-owned cabin retreat thrived in the mid-1900s, but it's fallen into disrepair. We've got what I call dilapidation. Brendalyn King walks around a group of old cabins built in the 1940s. They sit at the entrance to 244 acres of land that she and her partner recently purchased. They co-founded what they call the Salem Hemp Kings, and they're one of about 130 licensed industrial hemp producers in Missouri. We want to be a black-owned hemp processor. We want that to be a part of our legacy. We moved here for this. We got a little sidetracked, you know, a little forks in the road, but it ended up being a nice road to be landed on. It was a windy road for the St. Louis native and her partner, Osai Doyle, to Lake Placid. They first started growing hemp in Illinois in 2020, but their deal to buy land fell through. Then they found Lake Placid and fell in love with its history. Now their goal is to use this hilly land as a testing ground to create hemp-based products, such as building materials to fix up these old cabins. King says hemp stalks can be turned into something called hemp herd and used as a wood alternative. Anything wood can be used from hemp. So pressing that hemp herd together in like floorboards or wall boards. This is a little atypical for hemp farmers. Most are growing it to make CBD, the plant extract used in things like lotions and oils. 
And Angela Dawson is trying to help more black farmers learn how to do that. She's the founder of the 40 Acres Co-op, based in northern Minnesota. And she runs a mentorship program helping black farmers across states, including Illinois and Indiana. Dawson teaches how to grow hemp for CBD on a small scale. We are using hemp as the economic basis and stimulus for really creating opportunities for our businesses because, you know, you may or may not know, but it's really tough to be an organic farmer. It usually doesn't pencil out in terms of income. She says growing hemp requires specific techniques and the right strain. Dawson has spent the last three years developing a hemp strain that won't test over the legal limit of 0.3% of THC. That's the psychoactive component of the plant. Testing too high can result in farmers losing their entire crop. Yet experts such as Leanne Moses say access to capital and land are the biggest barriers to entry for black farmers. No, I don't see a lot of opportunity, but I do see opportunity. Moses is the farm superintendent at North Carolina A&T State University. He helped bring the industrial hemp program to the historically black institution in 2016. He says if the federal government wants to increase diversity in hemp, it needs to offer the resources. First and foremost is provide either low interest loans or grants or those kinds of things that make funding available for those farmers that may not have the funds. Back in Missouri, the Salem Hemp Kings have already jumped that barrier. They have their land at Lake Placid, thanks to support from friends. But King says it'll be a few years until they can plant their first crop. I know that it's a lifelong process. I'm not going anywhere. So even to know that we have a lot of ideas, but also see my life horizon, I'm like, yeah, I've got 50 years. <laughs> In that time, King hopes to help other black farmers seize opportunities in hemp, too. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Corinne Ruff. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, including KCUR. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast is produced by Trevor Grandin and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. For more local news from Kansas City's NPR station, visit KCUR.org, where you can also find our live stream. Tomorrow, we'll hear from a Kansas City Star journalist about the newspaper's latest investigation into racism at the Kansas City Police Department. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. They started dancing for fun. It was more of like a hobby for us, kind of like a passing time. And then things got real. The moment that the Kansas City Chiefs reached out to us was an insane moment. Hear that story on the KCUR Studios podcast, Real Humans by Gina Kaufman, wherever you get your podcasts.